Hey, futurists. If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we'd love to connect with you. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Hence the Future and on our website at HenceTheFuture.com. Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Mattimore Cronin. And today we're discussing the future of facial recognition. That means we'll be exploring the policy landscape, how different countries and cities are embracing or shunning facial recognition, technology landscape, including the pros and cons of facial recognition as a form of biometric identification, um, and also some of the use cases. So how facial recognition and technology is being used and how those use cases may evolve over time. Uh, but maybe to start off, Matamore, um, let's talk about the barriers to entry. How uh, easy or difficult is it to actually use facial recognition technology? Right. The barriers to entry are very low for facial recognition. And the Washington Police Department, which was the first police department to actually implement facial recognition for policing, Mm -hmm. they did an interview and they said that it only cost them $700 to set it up with Amazon. And then the ongoing monthly cost is like seven or eight bucks a month. So it's very low cost. And those costs are only going to go down over time. I could see a a near future where it's basically open source and anyone can, can use it. And then obviously... Anyone can do facial recognition just with Snapchat face filter or Animoji on their iPhone or all the social facial recognition aspects. Or also on Facebook, if you've ever been tagged in a photo based on... a little square around your head. Right. And they're like, is this head. you? And you're like, no, it's that's someone else. But, <laughs> but more than often than not, it is you now because yeah. it's gotten really good. I mean, there's so much training data on Facebook and everywhere. The, the interesting thing about what you're saying about Amazon, because they have this service called Recognition, Recognition with a K. Um, hmm. I guess they like to do the, the Ks <laughs> in their names. Um, but it's it's really interesting uh, that the these models are already pre-trained. So they're very good hmm. at a facial recognition right out of the box as a piece of software. Right, and the, the way that the Washington Police Department uses them is very simple. So basically, they just get a photo from a crime. Like, let's say your Amazon package gets stolen from your porch, but because you have a ring system, you've caught the person's face. They will then send Mm -hmm. that to the police, and the police just upload it to this facial recognition software, and then it gives them the results. One thing that I thought was interesting is that it gives you possible matches. So if you upload one photo, it'll give you like five different faces that match. And then it'll also give you the confidence interval, like 99%, But what I found interesting is that the Washington Police Department actually stopped using the confidence interval because they found that more often, like a lot of the times it was just wrong. So you'd get one person that if you're a human looking at it, this definitely is the guy. Mm -hmm. But if you're a machine looking at it, it's definitely not the guy. And so they found that the best workflow was just to have the photos that are the match and then have the humans sort of do the like, okay, does this yeah. actually look like that guy? Rather than mm-hmm. focusing on the confidence intervals, which weren't always that accurate. Yeah. And to maybe just touch on the difference, like why this is such a hard issue. And because humans have this crazy capability of re- seeing a face once and recognizing that it's different from anything it's seen before or as a familiar face. It's, mm-hmm. it's just something that we've evolved to be able to do very well. But like we sort of talked about in the Future of Algorithms episode, it's not very easy for, or it hasn't historically been very easy for computers to do this. Right. There have been like very sophisticated deep learning methods that are used now for, for image recognition. But these methods keep getting better and better, and eventually they'll be better than humans at some right. of this stuff. Like that New York Times article about the um, the three cameras in Bryant Park. Mm-hmm. Um, I would recommend that listeners go check that out because it's super interesting. Um, 
they saw the side of a op, I think it was like an ophthalmologist, right. uh, some professor's head and recognized who it was and said, you know, it's very likely that it's this person. And when the professors that were doing this experiment reached out to this professor, they identified because it was all just a test mm -hmm. and they didn't, you know, they threw away all the data afterwards, but they talked to this guy and he was just blown away about right. Because a normal person wouldn't be able to tell that that was him just by the side of his face and like part of yeah. his jaw. But the way that computers recognize faces is that they find, you know, how far is your nose from the corners of your mouth and how far is mm -hmm. your nose from each of the corners yeah. of your eyes. And it's all based on these, you know, geometric patterns on yeah. people's faces. Yeah, it's yeah. a super, it's like a mathematical representation of a face. And, you know, we probably deep down, there is a little bit of math that's being done in our mind, but we don't recognize it as math being done. It's just right. like, oh, this is, this is a person I've recognized before. But well, it's definitely computers. a system one, like with, um, yeah, yeah. you know, thinking fast and slow. It's something that happens without us even having to consciously think about it. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever met someone at a cocktail party and they're like, oh, my God, do I know you? Like that just shows how much we expect every face to be unique. And if we see mm -hmm. one that we remember, then that's like triggers something. And we're like, oh, how, where do I know you? And this happens to actors all the time, uh -huh. especially smaller actors, because people will see them in commercials. And then when they see them in real life, they'll be like, oh, do I know you? But it's just because they've seen that likeness before. Mm hmm. Yeah, and so maybe to touch a little bit more on the law enforcement side and the Amazon mm -hmm. uh, recognition, there's been a debate recently about yes. whether to... So there's been bans in certain cities, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that, but um, the, the shareholders were trying to decide whether or not to allow Amazon to sell the service the recognition service to law enforcement agencies and the right. government um and as of as of you know this morning the the shareholders don't really see a problem with it um there's a lot of pushback there's been protests like it's it's a really big controversial subject right now like should should these law enforcement agencies be able to have this really good facial recognition software Right. And I like the way that San Francisco has responded to this, which mm -hmm. is pretty much the birthplace for facial recognition technology, at least in the U.S. Mm. And the way they responded is that they, quote unquote, banned it. But when you look at what that ban actually is, they're forcing any government facial recognition program to be made public, to be made mm. aware to the public. So... You cannot. So it's not like they can't use it. They just need to release right. it. And because okay. we have a democracy, if you know that the police has certain practices, we can then have a vote and say, hey, we don't want this. So just by making it public, it solves a big part of the problem. Mm -hmm. However, it does not ban private company use of facial recognition technology. So you could still have people walking around with Google Glasses capturing faces and adding them to a database um, but you couldn't install facial recognition cameras on street lights or or any public area without the consent and awareness of the public yeah well that's i mean that's a little bit scary to think about because there have been a lot of um surveys on what people think is um what they think about this kind of stuff but i'm curious what you're like what do you think about the facial recognition software being used by law enforcement and um yeah well the interesting thing about this topic is that it's kind of like you know in the worst case and the best case the technology is really good <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it seems pretty avoidable that the technology won't just be incredibly accurate far more accurate than the human eye mm -hmm. in the short term and obviously i would like to take advantage of it like if an amazon package got stolen off of my porch, I would want to be able to use facial recognition to find that. Or let's say your your laptop gets stolen at a coffee shop and they have the guy on camera, you would be infuriated if they weren't able to go to the police and search the database with that photo. It just seems like what's expected now, because we all know the technology exists. I think what, re what it really comes down to is what are the values that create the boundary lines 
for this technology. And if we can keep it within the boundary lines of what American values have been historically, which is freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of the press, privacy rights, if we can keep that, some semblance of that, then I think we should take advantage of facial recognition um, and just you know use those values as our guiding stars. Yeah, and just to kind of give some stats, um, the so if people were asked the question, do you approve or disapprove facial recognition software being used by law enforcement? Uh, 64% either strongly approve or somewhat approve the yeah. facial recognition software. So 30% strongly approve and 34% somewhat approve of um, Right. So the, the public opinion is pretty strongly in favor of facial recognition. Yeah. And this is the same across gender divides, across age divides. I didn't see anything for ethnic divides. I don't think there's a stat on that, but it is okay. interesting because there was, you know, the big New York Times article about how facial recognition systems are much more error prone when you're dealing with minority groups, especially people right. with darker skin pigmentation, just because it's more difficult for the technology to know. I think what... it's like see the contrast. Right. I think there's there's a couple things that are harder in the images to discern, but yeah, that's a huge issue. Like, you know, like we've talked about several times, the data set is also an issue because when we look at this being used for law enforcement, it turns out that a vast majority of images in the public database or like facial images, uh, there's a lot of mugshots. And it just so happens that a lot of mugshots are predominantly African-American men, which skews the data, which, you know, it. It's just, it's really problematic when you think about, you know, what, how this is being used, but kind of like you were saying, also, it can be used for extreme good. Like if you think of, you know, there's, there's the little petty crimes like theft and stuff, but there's also way Terrorism. more sinister crimes. Yeah. And, and like yeah. human trafficking and we might be able to stop this kind of stuff. Right. Like uh, if you had an Amber alert and you could just mm -hmm. instantly tap into all the cameras across the country then you could find the kidnapper very quickly. And that's yeah. a big argument in favor. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, this all depends on the technology itself being more or less foolproof. And, you know, you right. brought up that there are biases in the data just simply because we have a discriminatory history in the past. So more mm -hmm. African-Americans are represented in our prison population than should be. Um, but then there's also biases in the technology itself you know we talked about skin pigmentation and the difficulty to pick that those differences up and they did a study and they found that for the three biggest facial recognition systems which are microsoft ibm and megv of china uh, microsoft's error rate for darker skinned women which is the most difficult group to detect was 21 percent error rate ibm in china had a 35 percent error rate and the wow. error rate for white males is 1%. So really? there's a huge discrepancy in how accurate these are based on who the person is. Mm -hmm. And part of that's also because, yeah, for criminals, the database is overrepresented for African-Americans. But in general, you know, they found that one widely used facial recognition data set had more than 75% male and more than 80% white. So they're also training the systems on more Caucasian people for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's just that. Well, I don't know for sure, but it seems like the fact that uh, Caucasians in America are currently the majority ethnic uh -huh. group. So that right. that could be that could be one of the reasons. But you know, there's there's a lot of different things that we need to consider when coming up with this data and all this other, you know, everything used in this uh, facial recognition software. Yeah, and it can get a lot better over time. And every indicator for American tech companies show that they're trying. Like Google really has put a big effort towards minimizing any sort of discrimination through their recognition technology. Um, mm -hmm. So I think as long as these com companies are somewhat transparent and as long as we have some sort of boundaries, they'll continue to al align their incentives with more accuracy and more in line with the use cases that are beneficial as opposed to scary. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's another case when we talk about how China is using the technology.
Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe uh, we could talk about how China is using the technology and how that's (laughs) that's a sort of a scary thing to think about because there's it's a more totalitarian type of government and they're also advancing very quickly with everything and they have a lot of training data because they have a yes, lot of people way more training data mm. and the the way that they've been using it has primarily been surveillance to consolidate mm. power for the state and the way the place that they've done that the most is in northern china in the province of xinjiang where there's a large muslim population oh right of, of uyghurs is what they call them and these people are more culturally similar similar to Central Asians, like Mong- Mongolian kind of culture, as opposed to like the Han Chinese culture. Yeah. And because of these differences, and and obviously the, there's something very different about having one religion versus another, just in the way that you think about the world. China has very has been basically using this as a testing ground for all of their surveillance technology, and that in, like there was one reporter who went to China and on a two subway stop, he counted more than 200 cameras just on a two subway stop to his work. And these are, unlike in America where you can more or less see where the cameras are, they're hidden everywhere. They're hidden in little holes, on trains, they're hidden in mosques. Like there was like tons of, in, in mosques. And they even have these like, convenience store police shops where like every four blocks there'll be like a little concrete hut that is basically a mini police station wow that surveils and there's all these checkpoints where they force you to to you know get your fingerprint taken and and they even had recently they had a mandatory health check so they got everyone in this area of northern china to come in for a mandatory health check but it wasn't really a health check. It was just to get all of their biometric information. So they took blood sample to get their DNA. They took a voice sample to get voice training. And they took a picture of them for facial recognition, fingerprint. Now they have they can just track every single person wherever they go, anywhere in their country, and even to a large extent, anywhere outside of their country, especially when you consider all the technology infrastructure they control, like all of Huawei phone devices and they're making a big play in 5G as we talked about with the future of 5G. So the really scary thing to me is that this surveillance state dystopia that's going on in China is now spreading beyond the boundaries of China and even Chinese Americans are really hesitant to speak up about this at all. And it's almost like they're being controlled from afar because they know that the reach of the state is so broad and they don't want to do anything Mm -hmm. that could endanger their relatives or friends back home just by being associated with them. Yeah, and that's one of those things that you you think of coming from like North Korea, where it's like the super totalitarian government that'll punish your friends, your family, like anyone associated with you. But China can do the same thing. And with all of this with all of those cameras that you were talking about, like 200 cameras on a two subway stop, yeah. those are just the ones that the journalists found. Right, right. So so it could have been double or trip. you know, we don't know, but those were just the ones um, that he found. Uh, yeah, I just, I think it's really terrifying to think about what China is doing with that because, oh. I was going to say, and, and it, also, it also gives them an excuse to send people to re-education camps, which is, basically form of brainwashing and they if someone does something that is suspicious which can be as broad as being really savvy with technology could be an indicator you know reading the quran could be an indicator even talking with someone who also is flagged as being suspicious that could be an indicator but any one of these could get you sent to a re-education camp and there they basically just drill down into you you know, all of the values of China and why you must, you must, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what the Chinese communist leadership says is yeah. always what's best. And it's yeah. like, I mean, it's amazing that this just exists in the world in 2019. And Well, the thing too, is they, 
wrap this in a really pretty package. They make it mm -hmm. super convenient for people to use these video or these facial recognition devices. Like at a restaurant, you can go in and basically pay with your face. Like it'll take a picture of your face and then it automatically knows your account and then it can drain money from your account that way. Like right. your, your face is almost like your wallet, your identification. Like you don't need anything besides your face at this point. Um, and they so they just make it super convenient for everyone in China to use this sort of technology. In the meantime, China is gaining an unreasonable amount of training data, like perfect images of people's faces, probably higher resolution than normal. And yeah. it's just it's one of those things that um, like when you're not necessarily everybody in China is looking at this as a bad thing because it's really convenient to have this sort of some of these services and maybe you know it, on the surface it looks like what we would consider like towards a best case scenario but like you said it's kind of like what are the values behind uh, how China is approaching this technology right and you can see how some Chinese would be totally supportive of this where mm -hmm. if they're totally law-abiding if they happen to love the, the, the Communist Party and if all of their friends and relatives are like-minded, then they have no reason to be against this. They feel totally safe. I saw one stat that said that China has a 99% prosecution rate, meaning for any crime, they find the perpetrator and prosecute them 99% of the time. So it's basically impossible to get away with a crime in China. Wow. So that's the good side. Um, but the thing that also is just a little bit scary to me is the whole point system, the social credit score, which we've talked about, yeah. because this is like, yes, you have some freedom, like you could go on a, you know, on a social media site and start saying bad things about the Chinese government or talking out against facial recognition, but there's going to be consequences for that. Everything mm -hmm. you do is going to have consequences. Even reading certain books and talking to certain people has consequences. So this point system where they dock you based on how you spend your free time it makes there be repercussions to certain types of behavior so they're really driving a certain way to live your life mm -hmm. and the only the only uh area of of you know the only safe space left is within people's minds like the the no one can know what they're yeah. thinking but even that is potentially something that technology could figure out eventually yeah. and so. that's that's another thing too about uh, facial recognition is you can actually determine a person's emotions yes. by their facial I expressions to talk about this yeah because that's a way to essentially see into a person's mind right. is to kind of see are they angry are they happy are they sad you know if yeah. you can see these things you can almost see you can almost get into the minds of people especially if you can see what their mood is while performing certain tasks right because like if you're reading if, an article that's critical of the government your facial expression while you're reading that article tells a lot uh -huh. i mean you could be really happy you know that someone is being critical of the government or you could be angry like it, right. if you show that you're angry when when you're you know reading something negative about the government that might be good for the um, that might be good for your social credit score if it's seen and right. when you make I think there you know this I haven't uh, done too much research into um, this recently but um, I have heard that you when you make certain facial expressions, like when you smile, you actually can become happy. Or when oh, you're totally. sad, yeah. like when you when you frown, you actually can become sad. And if there's a point where people realize that just the facial expressions that they make while they do something is necessary for social credit, they might actually start to change their actual attitudes towards things if yeah, they're making certain facial expressions during some task yeah and not even just for the social credit score but all across the globe people talk about your eyes as being the window to your soul but really your eyes don't move much at all it's all the little minute muscles around your eyes and the exact way that you have a facial expression and if computers are able to tap into that 
and they can know a person's state, not just as a single data point, but as a continuous data set, how their facial changes over time. I mean, think about how, how often you are staring at your phone where it can just perfectly identify what's going yeah. <laughs> on and how that would be fairly easy for someone to hack into, especially if they happen to make that device, <laughs> right? Yeah. Then that's scary. And, you know, as a marketer, I can totally see how this could be used to spread misinformation, to manipulate mm -hmm. people, to brainwash people. Or in America, maybe it's just meant to sell people stuff that they don't need. But even that is not something that we want. Um, so it's True. that that is one of the least talked about risks. But to me, that seems like one of the greatest risks when it comes to this technology. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And that, you know, that makes me want to start talking about the worst case scenario because it's. Yeah, I'm it's cool so, to go into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into the worst case scenario. All right, so what do you think about the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario. My worst case scenario is one in which China continues to propagate its one-stop shop for authoritarian regime software bundle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it continues to spread beyond China to other countries. We've talked about in previous episodes how China has a large influence over Africa. They oh yeah, pretty much they're building a lot of the infrastructure there for all the networks, like the internet and everything. So. Right, and as America has taken more of an isolationist position, like America first kind of mm -hmm. position, China has very much stepped into that void, and that is very prominent in Africa. It's also mm -hmm. prominent throughout Asia, and is starting to be prominent in parts of Europe. So my worst case scenario is where China has their solution, which is an authoritarian, unapologetic, you know, state mm -hmm. consolidation tool, basically. Yeah. And America does not offer a good alternative. Yeah. So if America doesn't offer a good technological alternative that empowers people and cares about things like privacy, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of the press, then there won't be a good alternative for other countries in Europe and elsewhere to choose from. So if we don't get our act together and really, you know, plant a flag in how we think about this technology, then my concern is that more and more countries will just adopt the Chinese model. And over mm -hmm. time, there will be all of these authoritarian regimes that have such great consolidation of power that mm -hmm. it will be virtually impossible for the people to revolt. Because if every little facial movement is tracked everywhere they go, every person they meet, person they talk to, whether it's in person, on the phone, or face, or uh, you know, through digital communication, then how could you possibly organize a revolution? How could you possibly change the regime? So that would be really scary to me. And, and um, yeah, I would not like to live in that world at all. Yeah. So the the other thing too is to just think about how this would actually take place like how how is china going to expand and if you think about how the us has become a dominant country a lot of it is through the military industrial complex by providing these other countries with weapons and other things along those lines related to defense and warfare but I could see something along the lines of like an, um, an information industrial complex where China is offering all of these services that give other governments an insane amount of surveillance technology. Right. Um, it's kind of like you were saying. I mean, that's, that's basically my worst case scenario as well is to see a government that is like, you know, 1984 and we have the Ministry of Truth that's just monitoring your every move and... Um, I mean, it's honestly, China is not that far away from no, they're not right now. And, and that's terrifying. And when you think of how that could spread to the rest of the world, especially like you said, with the U.S. kind of taking their isolationist position. Right. There, plus there if, is no alternative. Yeah. And plus, if you just think about it as if you're a dictator and you have two different salespeople come to you and one salesperson says, hey, 
this technology, it's really great for your people. Your people are going to love it. There's going to be all these mm -hmm. safeguards. No one's going to be taken advantage of. And then you have another salesperson who says, hey, this technology is really great for you. It will consolidate your power. No one will be able to, to hold a candle to that power. And mm -hmm. you will have total consolidation and control over all of your people. Then it really just comes down to what type of dictator are you? And yeah. a lot of people would probably take the selfish route. You know, look at um, Maduro, for instance, or some of these leaders that are just really fighting to keep their power. It's hard to imagine that those countries would go towards uh, an American model if the other option is available to them. And unless there's serious international pressure against this kind of thing, then, yeah, some portion of the global uh leadership is going to adopt it mm -hmm. and then i just have one other point about my worst case and then I'd, I'd like to hear yours is something we haven't discussed which is the social media use of facial recognition technology and everyone does this on snapchat like you know the the female and male face filters have been absolutely viral and a lot of people re-downloaded and subscribe to snapchat specifically for that also, the baby filter is really big, but these filters are becoming so ingrained in culture that I wonder if that's contributing to the spike in suicides, especially among girls. Oh. Because if you, from a young age, notice that when you share a photo of yourself with your regular face, you don't get as many likes as when you share a photo with your, you know, Instagrammable, like face filter that mm -hmm. makes your eyes big and your chin narrow and you look like kind of like a baby and then you get yeah. way more likes on that or with like the puppy dog ears or whatever uh -huh. that can have serious uh, self-esteem issues or can cause yeah. self-esteem issues so yeah i mean obviously it's a lot more dire the surveillance state you know limiting of freedom but it's also worth considering like what are the effects that these face filters have on teens self-esteem and I almost feel like we should not allow kids to use that until they're like I don't know 18 or something because it just seems like that would could mm -hmm. I mean also no none of us have ever experienced what it's like to have that technology in use from such an early age because it's fairly recent yeah. nobody's old that has been using that yeah yet. so yeah there's a lot of things that it's got to mess go with your identity psychologically yeah yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe we uh, step back a bit and, and talk about some of those other use cases that might be a little bit, you know, scary right now because you do have the, the filter and the facial recognition stuff, which could be really cool, right? And, um, I mean, it is kind of cool to see, uh, like, it's funny to watch yourself change into a girl with the most recent Snapchat filter. Or if you're a girl, you can see yourself <laughs> turn into a guy. Yeah, or just sending um, an emoji messages to your friends. Like, as far as it helps you communicate and connect with loved ones, it's great. Mm -hmm. But I think when it, when it changes your self-image so that your regular face gets knocked down in your perception, mm -hmm. then that's, that's the issue right there. Yeah. And, and I also think that we could see in the further future, if we envision a world with um, more virtual reality, where people just kind of escape to their yeah, oasis-like yeah. world, where, you know, maybe they have avatars, but it's like a perfect version of themselves. Like right, it's kind of, it's right. kind of their face, so you could recognize somebody as being this person, Yeah, but you, well, <laughs> you just look like you just look beautiful all the time or, or it's, you know, you, you're some other species, like you change into an elf or something, you know, like, like all of these, all of these. Well, things, I bet you like, one good way to study it would be how close are real people to their Tinder profile pick over time. And I bet you <laughs> that that gap widens every consecutive year. And what kind of world is that? If you're like expecting to go on a date with someone and they look completely different, it's, yeah. it's just a weird world and it definitely, you know, I feel like a theme of this podcast has been whatever is natural and is in line with what has helped humans to flourish thus far, we should continue that and whatever is sort of unnatural and, you know, when you play it out to its logical conclusion leads to absurdity, we should avoid that. 
Yeah. Well, there's, a, I mean, there's, there's obviously nuance to that because, like, you, you can't always use the same methods to, to grow and prosper because early on, religion was a great way to bring people together and bring communities together, and. Well, well, I would argue that we still have religion just by another name. Like religion is really like a set of abstract beliefs. And you could say that our religion is democracy and capitalism and true. And and, and then some importance of the prominence of the individual. Right. That's the big difference between the the Western religion and the China or the the Eastern religion is Mm -hmm. is individual versus collective. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um we just there are some not all religions are created equally in terms of how well they help us prosper because some oh, are more sure. oppressive some are progressive like you know either the capitalism or western values you know that kind of stuff are a little bit more progressive than let's say you know the the web the westboro baptist church ide- mm-hmm. ideology so there's you know there's a lot of um there are things that help uh, that we have been doing for a long time, and there are things that also hurt. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of biology and instincts that we need to not listen to. Like our impulses mm-hmm. to eat fatty and salty food, right? right. Like that's one yeah. of those things that helped humans. Yeah, we should we should do what's stages. more in line with our neocortex now, as opposed to our yeah 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 yeah, uh, yeah. our reptilian brain. Right. But anyways, <laughs> yeah. I want to hear your your worst case scenario. Well, so I, I kind of, you know, mentioned this, but it's it's really just having a situation like 1984, like the Ministry of Truth, or like China drawn out to its extreme, where they do, I mean, it, it's essentially what you said, it, yeah. we, ours don't differ that much, and just having this this surveillance all over the world that can basically track you, That and, and this is like, uh, tracking between countries too, like these these oppressive countries might even share information with each other. Um, oh, I bet they would. I mean, I would. Yeah. I would think of it as it's like a forest, but there's one mega tree that kind of is like the mother tree of that area, and that's what China's going to be. If this plays out in the way that we're discussing, then mm-hmm. China would basically be like the central, you know, motherboard for all of these authoritarian surveillance programs. And because they created the technology, they would be able to sort of see what's going on and all across the yeah. world. And the more that that spreads, it could be one global China, essentially. And that's great if you like that model, but if you care about privacy and freedom of speech and freedom of thought, then mm-hmm. it's terrible, so. Yeah, and I, I mean, and well, we can, we can go into the likely scenario after the best case scenario, but I don't see that as, like our worst case scenario does not seem that all far that off. unlikely. Right. Yeah. Um, but maybe we talk about the best case scenario now and um, I'm mm-hmm. curious to hear what your thoughts are. Best case scenario. My best case scenario is the US rediscovers its roots of freedom of speech, privacy, press, and we plant a flag basically saying this is what we stand for. Our technology is going to be in line with these values. And we talk to other countries, especially like-minded countries in Europe and Australia and, and Canada and all of our you know, best allies, and we get them to adopt this model. And that will at least be a counterbalance to the Chinese model. And mm-hmm. in the best, best case scenario, China would also realize that those values are important and that would probably only be possible through a regime change like Mm -hmm. if president g died and then i don't know if he has kids but like if one of his kids had a different philosophy from him or whoever was the next in power um, if they have a different philosophy and then they sort of move towards actually caring about freedom of speech and privacy But that seems so unlikely right now. I mean, maybe it's just because President Xi has been in power for so long and it's hard to imagine a a, a different China. Um, But that would be the best case scenario um, if it were possible. But as far as what's realistic, I think the U.S. needs to 
step back in and lead the world, not be an isolationist because it's crunch time now. This is when we are pretty much deciding the fate of the world because technology moves so rapidly. And if we don't really get together with other countries and and you know show them the importance of these values and provide them with the exact technology that they would need to do it in that right way, whether it's through 5G, through facial recognition, through search, through any of our other technologies, then mm-hmm. there's not going to be a good alternative, and we, we there's just will not be a counterbalance to China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree with that for sure. And for my best case, I was kind of, I kind of went the AI route and okay, how sure. you know if we had a super intelligent AI, how it could use this this sort of uh, facial recognition software in the best possible way. Right. Because if if we had this sort of I mean, it's it's a centralized AI, or may, you know, it could be decentralized if different countries had different AIs. I don't see that as very likely. But if there was some sort of AI system that could sort of be a surveillance, but it's really built on good values, not even necessarily um, like the current American values, just because there's a lot of. I mean, American values, I think, are you know in the right direction. But really focusing on privacy, really focusing on individual happiness. And I think that we could see a case where this AI system prevents all sorts of crimes. Like it's basically, it's preventing the crimes that we really know should not happen. And it's not, maybe it doesn't step in when there's a rebellion. Because sometimes rebellions are good. And... You know, we could have, um, you know, there's a, there's sort of a rebellion against the current government. Like there's people that speak out against the current government. And we, we don't want to stop that. We want to maximize individual freedom, individual freedom of speech and everything. So I think that if it was used to the best of its ability, it's not necessarily doing everything that it possibly can with facial recognition. Um, it's really just using it to prevent bad things from happening and maybe making things really easy and seamless like easy and seamless seamless uh, international travel so you can go across like maybe passports are a thing of the past and mm-hmm. you can go travel somewhere and essentially the world can just be one global country essentially and yeah i i like that i like that last part a lot uh-huh. um i i get a little scared when I start thinking about crime prevention, especially as someone who loves Minority Report, because it's okay. just hard. Like my, I feel like my best case would be more like, do whatever the hell you want, but we're going to know about it and there will be consequences. Sort of like Santa okay. Claus, like he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when, you, when you're awake, <laughs> he knows when you've been bad or good, yeah, <laughs> or good yeah. for goodness sake. Um, but yeah, Fair I mean, I, for me, it's all about how can we maximize freedom without imp- infringing on others' freedoms. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be not as so much crime prevention, but just knowing that they're like, if you know there's a 100% chance of you getting caught if you steal something or if you punch someone or assault someone, then the, very few people are going to do it. And if you do it, you're going to get punished and rehabilitated, mm-hmm. hopefully. And yeah. then. So that's more the the world that I would like to live in. That's that's a good point. And maybe maybe crime prevention is not the worst is not the term to use, but I also would like to see a place where um, you know, people didn't even attempt to kidnap children or anybody and you know And I think if there was a like 100% success rate with catching kidnappers, then mm-hmm. the problem would basically go away. Yeah, I mean, there that, might that be one true. case every, you know, 10 years, but it would be very rare. Yeah, and and that's that's a really good point because if if we did have a situation where, you know, we were preemptively preventing right. crimes, well, like because that, we because there's not... there's quantum uncertainty, right? So we don't know what's going to happen in that split second right before someone decides to pull the trigger or not. There's enough quantum uncertainty that we cannot predict we cannot create a model of the universe that will predict precisely what's going to happen at any given time we can of course provide confidence intervals but mm-hmm. it's hard to ever know for certain and this is exactly what minority report deals with um, huh. 
Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a good point because I mean you don't even if even if it's not um, quantum uncertainty, it's just you don't really know what's going on in a person's brain. Like you're you don't have access to every single electrical signal that's being sent in a person's. But even brain. if we did, I don't know if we could perfectly map out their behaviors because you would need you a so? a simulated system like. Yeah, you like, would you would need you would need a very very large computer. I don't think you know in the next thousand or even a few thousand years if we flourish and develop crazy technology we probably won't even be there by that point to develop a true model of the universe to where you know everything is deterministic you know that's that's one of the things i think that sam harris makes an argument about is like if if we could track every single particle in the universe could we like map out exactly where it's going to be well if we could do that i would argue that essentially what we're doing is we're using all of this power and energy to lock ourselves into a deterministic singular space-time continuum and we basically eliminate the other multiverse potentialities oh is that maybe because we're I mean, this is getting way out there. I don't know quantum physics that well, but if you collapse the wave function, like if you measure these particles, then you know where they are. You know, you know, you know right. what's going on. It's like, but it's like once no... you observe something in the double slit experiment, it becomes an actual point. But before you observe it, there's all this uncertainty. So it would almost be like if we observed everything happening in the universe all at once and on a continual basis, we're almost like locking ourselves into that that uh stream of the universe and well we should talk about this on the next episode quantum computing but i do find the theory of the single electron really fascinating i sent you that quote from richard feynman but the idea is that a lot of scientists throughout time have wondered why do all electrons have the same mass and all of this and the same energy and all the same traits and Richard Feynman, one time he got a call from his colleague, and the colleague said, hey, I know why all electrons have the same property. It's because they're all the same electron. Mm-hmm. And this would basically be like, at the highest possible dimension, there is only one electron, which is reflected in all things, living and what we would consider not living. And it just is sort of a, a model for how the interconnectedness of all things. And... Mm-hmm. I, I find that fascinating, but we should talk more about that on the future of quantum computing. Yeah, let's do it. Um, maybe let's just round out with the likely scenario. So what do you think? Most likely scenario. Right. My likely scenario is that the U.S. does return to our roots and care about freedom of speech, freedom of press. I think especially with the whole Trump saga... People are realizing how important the press is. I mean, New York Times subscriptions are through the roof. And the -hmm. Mueller report really confirmed that the press actually did a lot of really good reporting. The reason the Mueller report wasn't that explosive was because the press had already reported about most of it. So I think our values are going to be reflected in how we respond to technology like facial recognition. And I think Mm -hmm. other cities are going to take San Francisco's lead and start implementing safeguards And I have a lot of faith in the tech companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft. And I think they are going to get better at minimizing data biases, uh, Mm -hmm. getting better quality data sets. But I also think that China is going to continue along its path and its model for state surveillance. And the rest Mm -hmm. of the world is going to have to decide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I pretty much think um, very similar things will happen. the technology is just going to keep getting better. There's, there's almost no preventing that except for wiping out the human race. Like it's, it's, if we have any progress, like it's, it's going to keep getting better. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think there's still a lot of improvement. I think there will be near 100% accuracy from basically any angle of a face for any race, for any person. Like the only way to get around this will potentially just be um, like restructuring your face or like yeah. painting over your face well, or wearing like. Well, <laughs> there, uh, uh, you can create a mask 
So this is something that was proven right when Apple first came out with its face ID, where these mm -hmm. Hollywood costume companies that make masks of Donald Trump or Bill Clinton mm -hmm. or whatever, they created a mask exactly to match someone's face and it worked with facial recognition. So there are oh. ways to get around it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I mean, the real benefit for facial recognition is not that it's so much more accurate or so much more difficult to replicate. Like you could mm -hmm. get into someone's phone if you had enough time and enough money with their mm -hmm. face. But the reason it's so powerful is because it's totally passive. You can surveil people without their knowledge or consent. And it can happen in the background totally without them knowing. And it can be done on a massive scale. It can be done from long distances. So that's that's what makes it the perfect state surveillance tool. Yeah. No, that I mean it's it's scary. Um, but you know, there there are potential positives that can come out of it. You know, the law enforcement thing is obviously the big one. And then convenience. Like there there's going to be I, I think it'll just become a bigger part of our lives. It just it will be split between the way that the U.S. and other um, Western countries in, let's say, Europe, for example, treat it, and how China and China's, you know, allies treat right. this technology. So, we yeah, I think we'll see some of both in this likely scenario. Very important thing. Totally. Well, I think that's We're a good place to end it. What has happened, this has been the future of facial recognition. And what will inevitably and happen next week? The past, the present, and the future. Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.